Hello, you are listening to Radio Maria, and this is your word for today with me, Brother Bede Mullins, a Dominican friar of Blackfriars, Oxford. As the time drew near for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely took the road for Jerusalem and sent messengers ahead of him. A new kind of purpose enters Luke's gospel at this point. So far, Jesus has played the role of an itinerant preacher and healer, passing from place to place with little obvious rhyme or reason to his movements. Now he moves with purpose, resolutely, to a definite location, Jerusalem. The road to Jerusalem will be the road Jesus takes to heaven. For the devout Jew of Jesus' day, Jerusalem was the centre of the world. More specifically, it was the navel, the belly button of the world, not just at its centre, but the place of a special connection, umbilical cord-like, to that heavenly power which sustains the whole cosmos. Ascending the Temple Mount, progressing through the Temple's several courts, one drew nearer and nearer to the place where heaven and earth meet, the mercy seat, which was God's footstool. The whole movement of the Old Testament up to Jesus' day was, in geographical terms, a narrowing progress toward Jerusalem. And as this progress took place, the theology of the Old Testament became more and more focused on the temple and its worship. To begin with, the chosen people, twelve tribes, are settled in the Holy Land. Later, they are brought into a closer unity under David, the king of Judah. David makes his capital in Jerusalem, and it's there that the Lord demands to be worshipped, there alone. The high point comes in Solomon's reign. Until now, the ark of God has been housed here and there and always in a tent. But Solomon builds a permanent structure, the first temple. After Solomon, however, the kingdom is fractured. Judah becomes estranged from the rest of Israel, and while the temple remains in place, many Israelites desert it for their local shrines. Rather remotely, this might have something to do with the origin of the Samaritans, who came to worship on Mount Gerizim, which they regarded as the great holy place. After the repeated warnings of the prophets, the sins and divisions of the people of Israel and Judah were at length punished by exile to Babylon. The first temple was destroyed. But only for a time. With the overthrow of Babylon, God's favour appeared to be restored when the new great power, the Persian king Cyrus, decreed that the Jews should return to Judea and recommence their worship, rebuild their temple. Zechariah's prophecy Our first reading today was written against the background of this excitement. Israel's subjugation to these foreign powers might have been a moment to lose faith in God. Where was God's power, God's glory, God's promises now? The exiled Judeans learned a very different lesson. Rather than coming to think of the Lord as powerless, the Judeans realised even more clearly that their God, the Lord, was God not just of Judah and Israel, but of the whole world, 
they realized even more clearly his omnipotence. For it was the Lord who had used an earthly power to punish the sins of his chosen people. And it was the Lord who made use of another earthly power to restore his people to their land. The earthly geopolitics of their day, the Judeans saw as being completely in the Lord's hand. Chapter 45 of Isaiah would speak of Cyrus the Persian king as the Lord's instrument. So the restoration of the temple brought with it an exhilarating feeling that the temple's construction was a matter of importance for the whole world. Many prophets at this time, not just Zechariah and Isaiah, carry a message of universalism, a declaration that God's blessings are intended not only for his chosen people, but through his chosen people for the whole human race. We read it today. Many peoples and great nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favour of the Lord. The chosen people will indeed be the envy of the human race, as Zechariah predicts here. In those days, ten men of nations of every language will take a Jew by the sleeve and say, We want to go with you, since we have learned that God is with you. Jesus, in our Gospel, by sending out his messengers to the Samaritans, is as it were extending an invitation for them to join him on the road to Jerusalem. He is signalling that the time has come for God's worship and God's favours to be carried once more to the whole people of Israel, and indeed to the whole world. The fact that the Samaritans reject this invitation is an early sign that things will not work out quite so straightforwardly as some prophecies might lead us to think. Yes, God means to extend his blessings to all the earth. Yes, these blessings will come by way of Jerusalem, but not so literally as we might expect. That's one reason why Jesus rejects the hot-headed suggestion of James and John to call down fire and brimstone on the Samaritans. If Jesus were a king in the earthly mould, if Jesus were going to set up just another earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, then, yes, it might make sense to wipe off the face of the earth all those who reject his gracious offer, but Jesus is not like that. He may be going to assume his judgment seat, but he doesn't give the judgment quite that we expect. Unwittingly, the Samaritans, by rejecting Jesus, in fact help to clarify for us what his mission is not. Their faithlessness serves a prophetic purpose. Because the road to Jerusalem will turn out to be Jesus' road to the cross, his road to rejection to court. And the mount where God is worshipped in spirit and in truth ends up being nearly in Jerusalem, but not quite. It's not the Temple Mount, but Mount Calvary. There was always a strain in the Old Testament which resisted the onward march to Jerusalem. Initially, God did not want his people united under a king. Kings were the way that the nations round about did things. And initially, God preferred the wandering ark to the fixity of the temple. And even once king and temple were in place, well, the people proved too faithless to profit by them. Jesus' nearly but not quite fulfilment of the prophecies 
shows a radical recalibration at work, one that will dislocate our obsession with earthly signs and earthly rule. The earthly Jerusalem, after all, could only ever be mother to one people. Biological descent and geographical location are not flexible categories. Only a spiritual Jerusalem could really become mother to all the nations of the world. A Jerusalem defined simply by the single-hearted love of God. If you ask, where is that spiritual Jerusalem? What place is this? We can only answer the body of Christ, racked and tortured on the cross. The body of Christ, glorious now in heaven. The body of Christ, where you and I have found our home.